Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our series on divine design this morning from Romans chapter 8. This past week, my sisters and I finished the task of administering and closing out my mom's estate. It's certainly nothing anyone looks forward to doing, of course, but it wasn't as difficult and time-consuming as I had feared that it might be. Though I do realize my mom's estate was not nearly as complicated or controversial as some turn out to be. Many of you will take part in that process at some point in your life, or at least others will do the same for you. After we began with a few early bumps in the road, because we didn't know what we were doing, the process played out rather smoothly, and my two sisters and I are still on speaking terms, as far as I know. Uh, You begin, of course, with the will. Hopefully there is one. And that document dictates who gets what and how much. But as you know, sometimes people don't like what the will says because they thought they were going to get more or they were promised something that is not in writing. And sometimes greed and competition take over and things can get out of control. Wills can be contested and tied up in court for years to come. Emotions can run wild and overrule logic, and family dynamics can be damaged, if not destroyed, for decades into the future. Countless families have members who aren't speaking and haven't spoken to one another in a number of years because of some slight perceived or otherwise in dealing with an estate. Money simply has a way of doing strange things to people. While this was the first time I was involved in the process and served as a co-executor, it was not my first time to receive an inheritance from an estate. While I was in seminary, I rented a house from an elderly lady. She did not live there. She simply wanted someone to live there. She spent the bulk of her time uh, on on the river in Arkansas where she had another place. And so she wanted someone to live there, and I did. Next door to me was an older couple that I spoke to on a regular basis and often helped them when they needed something. At some point, the man next door passed away, and shortly thereafter, his wife came over and paid me a visit. She brought with her several things that she said her husband wanted me to have before the family descended upon the place and got everything they wanted, and she was clearly not looking forward to them showing up and taking what they wanted. So that was my first inheritance. Well, what did you get, you might ask? Well, she brought over two things. First, a pair of black dress shoes that he had just recently purchased and wanted me to have, and secondly, there was a George Jones Greatest Hits cassette tape. So that was my inheritance. Now, I'm not going to tell you what my mom gave me, but I will tell you that it was more than that. But whether you've ever received an inheritance or not, whether you've ever been listed in a will as an heir or not, if you are a believer, you are a family heir. 
That is our topic today as we continue this series. If you are a child of the King, and remember I said at the outset that the vast majority of what we're going to talk about is reserved for believers only, and that is certainly the case today. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance set aside for you. And the good thing about that, among other things, is that there is no competition between siblings. You and I do not have to fight one another in order to receive this inheritance. We do not have to vie for our father's attention in order to gain more in this estate. All of us, any who are believers, equally share in the father's inheritance. So if you are a family member, you are a family heir. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And here it is, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The first thing is the most logical thing, and that is if you are going to be a family heir, you must be part of the family. Now, I do realize that sometimes people get an inheritance from outside of the family. That is, sometimes people do put in their wills that they want to give something to a friend or a nonprofit or a church. And certainly we know that is the case, but what we are talking about is that you must be part of the family in order to inherit anything. So if you are a member of the family, then you are a family heir. We notice this in verses 14 and 15, that we must be part of the family. Now, I generally try to walk through a section of Scripture verse by verse. That is, I try to start from the beginning and go through it. I'm doing it a little bit differently today just because it works out for me better that way. So I'm not skipping verses 12 and 13. We will come back to that in a moment. But the first thing we need to see is in verses 14 and 15, and that is we must be part of the family. Since this is the case, it's important to know whether or not we are part. Now, in a physical sense, that's rather easy for most of us. Most of us know what family we were born into. In other words, most of us know who our parents are. But spiritually speaking, we must be born again into the family of God, as Jesus so famously told Nicodemus. But how do we know whether or not that has happened? How do we know whether we're a part of the family? Well, the Scripture gives us many indications of that, but I'm going to confine myself to the ones that are listed here in this text. So first of all, in order to be a part, or not in order to, but first of all, if you are a part of the family, then our text tells us that you are led by the Spirit. Now, I realize that that is a bit subjective in the minds of many, meaning that people can claim to be led by the Spirit of God into saying or doing just about anything. 
But again, hold on to that because when we go back to verses 12 and 13, we're going to see that being led by the Spirit is not as subjective as you might think it is. There are some objective elements to it. That is, there are some evidences as to whether or not we are being led by the Spirit. I will remind you that first and foremost, the Spirit of God leads through the Word of God. By that I mean that God has revealed himself to us in his word and the spirit is given to us as a reminder, that is the spirit is given to us to remind us of the things that God has said in his word. This is really just a more general way of saying what we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians. You remember that? Last week we said you are a holy temple. The Spirit of God dwells within you, and as a result, you are not what you used to be. And such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been glorified. And as a result, we are to live differently. We talked about that in a specific way last week with a specific sin. This week, we are talking really about the same thing in a much more general way. Now, I start with that because many believe that the Spirit primarily leads through inner voices, promptings, circumstances, open doors, things like this. And I'm not denying that the Spirit can work in those ways. I am simply saying that you must understand that the Spirit of God works primarily through the Word of God, and if any other thing is telling you something different than what the Word of God says, then you are not being led by the Spirit. So this much is clear. Whatever you are turning to, thinking that you are being led by the Spirit, if it is leading you contrary to the Word of God, then it is not the Spirit of God. I would also say that the Spirit of God leads through prayer and wise counsel. Again, as long as we keep the Word of God prominent, meaning that God does indeed lead us through our prayer life. He does give us direction for life through our prayers, though I am not claiming audible voices or new revelation. And God does use the wisdom and advice of fellow Christians to help guide us. Whether that advice comes through personal counsel, sermons, or books, or any other avenue, God does use these things. But again, all of it must check back with the Word of God, which is another reason why we consistently say that we must know what the Word of God says, because this is the primary means by which the Spirit leads, and because we need to check other leading. That is, we need to be able to check if someone gives us advice, we need to be able to check whether or not that advice squares with the Word of God. So being part of the family means that you have the Spirit within Again, we talked about that last week, but it also means that you are being led by the Spirit of God to obey the things of God. More on that in a moment, but for now I want to turn our attention to what precedes the indwelling and the leading of the Spirit. So if you are part of the family, first of all, you are led by the Spirit, but secondly, you are part of the family and you are led by the Spirit because you've been adopted by the Father. This is not a natural occurrence for any of us. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. You are not part of the family because you were raised in the Christian South. You are not part of the family because you were born into a Christian home. You are not part of the family because your grandfather was a pastor. You are part of the family because God in his grace has adopted you into that family 
and made you a family heir. Now, the picture of adoption as a spiritual metaphor is a rich and beautiful image in the Bible. Adoption, of course, is the process of bringing a child into a family that is not their biological child. The biological family, generally speaking, voluntarily gives up the rights to that child, and another family adopts that child, taking on the responsibilities for that child and making them a part of the family. This, of course, is done for several reasons. Sometimes a couple is unable to have biological children, and so they adopt. Sometimes it's simply a desire to help children who are in dangerous or uh, situations that are not the best, and so they are adopted for better circumstances. In the Roman world, to which Paul is writing, sometimes an adoption took place for the purpose of continuing the family line, passing on the name of the family and the inheritance This, of course, could take place because the father did not have a biological son, or it actually could take place because the father did not deem his biological son to be worthy of carrying on the family name and responsibilities. There are, of course, several examples of adoption in the pages of Scripture. The first is the adoption of Moses. Moses was supposed to die with all of the other Hebrew children, But as you know the story, his mother placed him in a basket and put him in the river. And somewhere down the line in the river, Pharaoh's daughter saw him, pulled him out, had compassion on him, and in a sense adopted him as her own. She then, of course, called a Hebrew woman to nurse the child, and this just happened to have been Moses' own mother. Then, of course, we know in the book of Esther, Esther was adopted by her uncle Mordecai because she did not have a father and a mother. But perhaps the most striking example of adoption in the Bible, at least for our purposes in comparing it to how God adopts us, is the story of David and Mephibosheth. David and Jonathan were good friends, as you know. And when it became clear that David was going to be the next king, he made a promise to his friend Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son, the current king, But David promised Jonathan that when he became king, he would always be kind to his descendants. So when David did take the throne, he remembered his promise to Jonathan, and he honored that commitment and that promise to his remaining descendants. And so he called for any descendants of Jonathan that were left. Most of them were now dead, as you know. That would often happen when a new king took over. The other family was terminated. But David called for any descendants of Jonathan, and there was only one left, a crippled son named Mephibosheth. And so he summoned Mephibosheth to his palace, and no doubt this young man thought that his time on earth was coming to an end because of his heritage. Instead, he was given land, servants to provide for him through that land, and the privilege of eating at the king's table for the rest of his life. He had done nothing to deserve such treatment other than being the son of Jonathan, who was friends with David. Likewise, we are crippled by sin, unable to care for ourselves and deserving of nothing, and yet God has summoned us to his table. He has adopted us into his family. We who deserved judgment and death are now family heirs, so that Paul says we can now call him Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic term 
Father is the translation of the Greek term. Both of them, of course, are uh, intimate and tender terms. You might know that in Old Testament days, and even some practicing Jews still do this, they refuse to write the name of God. They put a hyphen in the name of God, taking out a letter or two because they refuse to write it because they deem God to be an unknowable entity. And yet Paul says here, and remember Paul was a converted Jew, he says not only can we write the name of God, but we can call God by this intimate name, Abba, Father, because we have a relationship through Christ that makes us part of the family. So number one, you are part of the family. If you're a family heir, you've got to be part of the family. But secondly, we need to notice, and we're backing up now to verses 12 and 13, we need to notice that we must participate with the family. Now, you tend to think when I use that as my heading that I'm going in one of two directions. You think participating with the family means that I'm about to talk about coming to church. Your need to gather with the family, to serve together, to fellowship together, to worship together. Or you might conclude that I'm about to talk about finances. That is your responsibility and mine to participate in the family financially. That all of us have a part to play in paying for the family expenses, something I'm currently trying to teach my now adult children and all of that would indeed be true and certainly applicable, but that is not where I'm heading today. Instead, I'm going back to verses 12 and 13, and in these two verses and in the last part of verse 17, we're going to see what Paul says about participating in the family. If we have to be a part of the family to be a family heir, what do we participate or how do we participate with the family? How do we know that we are part of that family? Do we simply declare ourselves to be, as so many talk about when we talk about a profession of faith? Or does the Bible point to some evidence or fruit in our lives that demonstrates what family we belong to? We've already talked about being led by the Spirit, but now we're going to get more specific. So first of all, participating in the family or with the family means that we die to sin. Again, this section is very similar and it does follow nicely upon what we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians. There we were talking about a specific sin, the sin of sexual immorality. But here we are basically dealing with the same thing but in a more general manner. This whole chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, is wrapped around the idea that we who are in the Spirit, we who have the Spirit, we who live in the Spirit, can no longer then live in the flesh. Since we have died to the flesh, we are to live in the Spirit, because again, last week, the Spirit lives within. You can find a helpful summary in verse 9. You've still got your Bibles open, so look at verse 9 of chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells within you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, I realize the verses we are looking at, verses 12 and 13, can be some somewhat confusing verses, so let me try to briefly explain. First of all, again, you remember last week that we said that the body is not evil. The body is not the problem. In fact, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul says that we are to put to death the deeds of the body, 
When Paul says that we are not to live according to the flesh, he is not demeaning the physical body. That's not our problem. Instead, it is simply a way of talking about sin. Paul is saying that sin is the problem and therefore must be continually addressed. In fact, in another tie into last week, he says at the beginning here, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. You remember we finished last week by talking about the fact that we are purchased. We are purchased by God. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we are not our own. So we must glorify God with our bodies. Likewise here, Paul is saying we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to its desires. Rather, we belong to the Spirit, and therefore we must live in obedience to His leading. That's what family members do. And this is just another way of talking about sanctification. And in that sense, this is a joint effort. Now, I hesitate to say it in those ways because I'm afraid of being misunderstood. We do know that sanctification is a work of God a work of God through the Spirit in our lives. But that doesn't mean we are passive. Instead, we are to take an active role in putting to death sin. Again, we saw this last week, flee from sexual immorality. That is an active command, something we must do. And likewise here, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. The old Puritans used to call this the mortification of sin. And while that term mortification is one that we don't use any longer and probably don't understand, the concept should remain. We must be actively involved in striving to terminate sin in our lives, both in our mind and in our bodily expressions, all the while knowing that we will never do this perfectly, but the desire and the striving should be present, which means we must know what tempts us. We must know where our weaknesses lie, and we must seek to avoid these things. It also means that we must be actively growing in our faith. After all, what better way to put to death the deeds of the body than to think on things that are righteous and pure, and to pursue righteousness and, of course, Christ himself? Because as we pursue those kinds of things, we will inevitably be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And so there is a combination here, dying to sin and pursuing righteousness. This is what participants in the family desire to do. Now, the second thing that I will mention, the second thing participants in the family do is not going to be something that you desire, but it does come with being part of the family. We are hitting that time of year when families get together for two upcoming holidays. Yes, there are two. Quit trying to bypass one because you like the other one better. There are two holidays in our near future. And both of these holidays are times when families get together. And that means there might be some things that we enjoy very much. And there might be some things that we kind of dread there might even be some people that we really don't want to see. But we know they have every right to be there because they are part of the family, whether we like it or not. So what I'm about to say for participants in the family, you might not like, but it is part of it. Participants in the family not only die to sin, but verse 17, 
participants in this family suffer with Christ. He makes it very clear there in the way that it is worded that this is not negotiable. This is simply part of what it means to be in the family. Now, none of us like to suffer, of course. We naturally want to jump to the glorification part and bypass the suffering part. But we don't get to pick the path. And the suffering along the way is preparing us for the glorification that is to come. We have no doubt that Christ suffered and did so on our behalf. Every spring as we gear up for Easter, we talk about the sufferings of Christ. We, we look at that last week of his physical life, the Passion Week as we call it. And we are reminded not only of his sufferings, but of his unjust sufferings, all endured because of his love for us. Likewise, we can look at the lives of the disciples and see them suffering for their faith, sometimes being beaten and imprisoned, and many of them ultimately, though it doesn't say this in the pages of Scripture, ultimately most of them were martyred for their connection with Jesus. We even read verses like the one we're looking at this morning and countless others, oftentimes from the very lips of Jesus himself, promising that those who follow Christ will also suffer like Christ suffered. And yet when it does happen to us, we are surprised. In fact, surprise might not be the right word. Sometimes we are downright angry. And instead of saying, well, he told us this would happen, he promised us we would suffer, or better yet, rejoicing that we've been counted worthy to suffer, as we see the disciples doing in the book of Acts. Instead, our reaction is often to question the love of God. Why am I going through this if God loves me? Or we question our commitment to Christ. Should I really be so faithful to him if this is what I get? Or sometimes we begin questioning whether the whole thing is worth it or not. And frankly... Our suffering is very mild compared to history and to other parts of the world. I'm sure you've heard that a graduate of Crown College in Powell was killed in Baghdad this week, ambushed in his car and shot. His wife was with him, but she was unharmed. He was 45 years old and serving there as an English teacher. And though I do not know this for certain, there is some indication, not in the story I read in the paper, but things I'm hearing elsewhere, that he might have been targeted because of his faith. And if that's true, not only was he martyred, but his family will continue to suffer. Now, his family is going to suffer regardless of the reason that he was killed. I'm simply pointing out the fact that it is quite possible that he died because of his connection with Christ. And most of us will never know that kind of suffering. Suffering that is directly connected to our commitment to Jesus. But try to remember during your lesser trials that suffering with Christ is part of being in the family. It's part of what it means to be a participant in the family. It's also the path and prelude to glory, which therefore we ought to keep in perspective. Look at the very next verse. We didn't read this, but verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Participants in the family die to sin and they suffer with Christ. The last thing I want to discuss 
And the reason this text is in this series, the reason we're talking about being a family heir is because you and I profit with the family. Our focus here is on verse 17 and the second part of our title, not the family part now, but the heir part. Furthermore, I'm using the word profit because it starts with a P. And some of you get upset or you think I'm being lazy if two of the points start with the same letter and the third does not. And so I'm stretching a little bit and saying we profit with the family, although it is legitimate as long as we understand we're not talking about profiting in the same sense that we often use the term, and that is in the financial sense. Paul says very clearly here that we are heirs of God. Now, we know what an heir is. An heir is a person who is a beneficiary, someone who gets something from someone else after their death. So it's not something we claim now. We only received it after our loved one dies. I realize that sometimes people joke about what they want before the time comes. Some family members even go to the next step and they put their names on things. They put a sticker underneath objects in the family home to verify that this is going to be theirs someday. I also do realize that some people do pass on things while they are still living, but by and large, an heir is someone who receives something through a will after a death. It is certainly rude to ask for your portion ahead of time. That's what the famous parable of the prodigal son is about, or the loving father, whatever you want to call it. The younger son demanded his inheritance before the time, and the father gave it to him, and the younger son left the family and went and squandered that inheritance. If your kids made such a demand today, you probably wouldn't give it to them. I would encourage you not to. And they might even risk not being in the will in the future if they made such a demand. My point is that being an heir means that we will profit, but most of that profit awaits us in the future. It is not something that we should expect nor certainly demand in the present. And a large part of our inheritance is God himself. The pleasure and the privilege of being with God forever. He is our portion. He is our inheritance, which means anything else is the proverbial icing on the cake. It's also important to realize that this prophet will not be divided among all of his children. I mentioned this briefly at the outset. We don't have to compete with one another. We don't have to vie for our Father's attention. God is not parceled out. We will all enjoy to the fullest being an heir of God, though I realize that is very difficult to grasp at the moment. But the very least I can say that the inheritance you receive from being a family heir in God's family will far exceed anything that you might get from being an heir of anyone else. But not only are we heirs of God, the text says also we are heirs with Christ. I mean, talk about something that's difficult to grasp. This, of course, does not mean that we are equal with Christ. He is still God and we are not. But it does mean that we share in his inheritance with him as our elder brother. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, God is speaking there and he's speaking about Jesus. He says, he has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. 
So Christ is the heir of everything, and we are joint heirs with him. And I'd say that's pretty significant inheritance to look forward to. Now, at the moment, your life may not look like it. And at the moment, if you were to brag to your friends that you are a family heir and a joint heir with Christ, they may not take that very well. But all of that is true. And we're going to see next week that if that is true of you, then it will be true forever. You don't have to worry about being written out of the will. God is not going to go back to his attorney and change the details. If you are a family heir, that is settled and secure. But of course, we've also seen that that doesn't mean that life will be easy as we await that inheritance. In fact, it might just be the opposite. So don't mistake the trials that you go through as a lack of love on God's part. Instead, remember that it is God preparing you for the inheritance and the glory that is to come. So trust him in the meantime. He is a good father who has promised us an unimaginable inheritance. And he is also faithful, so we know that he will make good on his promise. So be thankful that you are part of the family with the promise of a great inheritance in the future because this is who you are. You are a family heir. Let me pray. Father, thank you for adopting us into your family. We who were crippled by sin and unable to have a relationship with you on our own, but you chose us you adopted us, and you brought us into your family as an heir of God and joint heirs with Christ. I pray that you would remind us of these things when times get tough, that you would remind us of who we are when we struggle through some of the ordeals of life, and that you would help us to see, as Paul said, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And we thank you that all of this is done because of Christ on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.